everybody, and welcome back to the Feeling Seen podcast, the podcast that talks about the movies that make us feel seen. My co-host for this episode, you guys, if you ever listen to the Odds Tyrion podcast and heard me and the filmmaker Sam Weidman lose our goddamn minds over this person, you should know this is a big moment for me. Uh, we have we have Brianne Chu. Brianne Chu, who you might know from years of television work, kind of like throw a stone and you could hit a show that Brianne Chu has been in. Uh, the big highlights of that include Scream the TV series, uh, Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board. Very recently, uh, the I Know What You Did Last Summer television show that I uh, was breathlessly recounting in podcast episode recaps. And of course, for the movie that brings you before me today, Unhuman, a Marcus Dunstan film. You walked into a real moment here, Brianne Chu. Uh, is there anything else I can say before we get started to set you up properly? I mean, I'm so overwhelmed and honored because you're so flattering. <laughs> I need to listen to this podcast now that you're talking about. <laughs> when I need that ego boost, I'll just have it ready to go. Um, well, I'm currently in Calgary right now shooting um, the T-, T and Sarah's show based off of their memoir, high school and so that's really cool we um, love to hear Brianne Chu is currently shooting so yes I, <laughs> I mean I love to hear it too I'm very, <laughs> and I'm very grateful and um uh, a movie that's come out recently that people can watch on Paramount Plus is three months mm-hmm. and I did that alongside Troy Sivan that's uh, right that's right. And Jared Frieder is the director. And um, yeah, it's a beautiful story. And I, I love to bring it up as often as I can because I think it has a, um, a great message. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I have a, a couple, I have a movie slated to come out this year that I think, you know, other thriller horror fans might be excited. Right. Those familiar with that body of your work, uh, another thing for them to put on the calendar. <laughs> yeah, it's called The Cow, um, which is with... Eli Horowitz, who, okay. who directed and, and wrote it. And then um, it's with, when, you know, the one and only Winona Ryder and Dermot Mulroney <laughs> and John Gallagher Jr. and Owen Truly Dean. one and only. I mean, it's it's a, I still pinch myself, you know? I've seen the movie a few times now. We actually premiered at South by Southwest, and I still don't believe it's real. You have been – does this mean – have you been home in, like, two years then? Because, like, when the – hell did all of this happen yeah it's it's been quite a whirlwind and it's especially with everything going on in the pandemic and stuff it's crazy to think that like you know I've been working non-stop so I'm super grateful wow but as of last year I I haven't been home this year I've been home a little bit more which has been so nice Uh I haven't spent the last couple of months in Calgary but last year I spent a total of I think two months at home (laughs) wow (laughs) Well, uh, thanks for reporting live from Calgary then with us yeah. uh, in, a, in a life that belongs uh, everywhere and to all manner of fictional characters. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> this moment with you, the real life Brianne Chu. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is, this, is a, this is a first, I realized, on the Feeling Seen podcast. You know, we bring in, we have people come on, talk about characters and make them feel seen, presented. And you didn't come through with one character, but you said that the films of Wong Kar Wai were provided a source of sort of reflective identification for you. And this is, I went back and I looked through all the episodes. It's the first time we have had someone choose non-English language films to discuss on this. And we've had had directors from all over the world come and talk to us, but everybody has picked um, American work. And you are the first to not do so. And my God, what a way to start with Wong Kar Wai. I mean, wow. he he's a legend. His body of work is legendary, and he's so prolific. And um, yeah, when when the question was brought up to me about you know what role in a film has made me feel seen, mm-hmm. um, I've because I've been in Calgary, and there's not much to do in Calgary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I I have my Criterion subscription. There you go. There you and, go. And this. Uh, Wong Kar Wai is a director I've always kind of wanted to educate myself on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, I think we've had a real surgence in um, Asian film mm-hmm. making as well as, you know, foreign filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Bong Joon-ho, is, his work is really, and Squid Games has really um, mm-hmm. enlightened us on 
that. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to branch out and I started watching these one car wide movies. I'm a huge fan of Tony Leung. Oh, uh, God. He just. That's a man right there. That is a man. That is a star. Truly, truly. And you can't even put it into words. And so I started watching these films and I've, I've gotten through quite a few. And I, the first one I started watching was Chunking Express. I was going to ask what the entry point was. And, and did, was it just like, a well, I'm going to click one of these. Or was there a reason for Chunking? Um, the reason for Chunking, I mean, there's so many. So it kind of, I would say it was kind of random, but also... Yeah. I- really drawn to the fact that Fei Wong is in it. And I think as as, as a style icon, mm-hmm. I mean, she's just, she's at the top of my list. I mean, she's since <laughs> I cut my hair mm-hmm. to what it is now, this pixie haircut, and oh. I've I've always found her to just be so eclectic, so true to herself, so interesting, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so um, she was kind of, she kind of drew me to Chunking Ex- Express and I was just blown away. Mm-hmm. I was absolutely blown away by the level of artistry that to be honest, you know, other than some of the Korean films I've seen and Squid Games and whatnot, like I just hadn't seen Asian actors, Asian human beings be portrayed this way in such dynamic, vast, interesting, quirky ways. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's something that I, you know, hope for in my career. Mm -hmm. And so then, but it always growing up and I've been doing this a very long time. It always felt- Yeah, long time. You are a veteran. yeah, Yeah. And I always felt like I will only be able to play the characters that are suited for a person of color, specifically an Asian woman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And from what I've seen, there's a very limited, um, there's just limited choices, you know? And so I kind of put myself in that category of like, well, there's a limit to what I'm allowed to do and portray and to see that there is no limit. And that these people, these actors, including Tony Leung, they not only exceed mm-hmm. any performance I've ever seen, mm-hmm. um, but it's just like that can be normal. And, mm-hmm. and, and in other parts of the world, that is normal. And right. that that there should be more of an effort to normalize that here. And I think we are making an effort, but we have a long ways to go. But it just, it did something to my soul. It lit me up. It made me feel um, like... Asian um, actors, characters, people are allowed to fall in love. They're allowed to be messy. They're allowed to be the lead of a film and actually be the the only race that is of the film. You know, <laughs> yeah. Believe it or not, you can have more than one, more than two. You can actually mm-hmm. have a full cast, and um, and it can be just incredible. And it doesn't have to be fall into just stereotypes that we mm-hmm. tend to perpetuate in American film and television. And so, yeah, it made me definitely feel seen. And it, it's something I try to to be so intentional about in this podcast, which is I, I want to constantly be having, obviously, I want to constantly be having this conversation. Well, well, I have to be aware at all times that like the notion of diversity and representation, like the conversation can so often devolve into lip service. And also the conversation exists at all mm-hmm. because people are defined in contrast to whiteness, which makes them a point of diversity among a no- allegedly normative white surrounding cast and, mm. and set of creators around them. And so, and was that something, <laughs> were you surprised when you started diving into Wong Kar Wai's work at the feeling that you had while while you were experiencing it? Like, had I'm, I'm wondering about the level of sort of like internalization of that sense of, lack of possibility versus a self-awareness of it that like is kind of, I don't know, maybe oppressive or overwhelming. Like, but I, I wondered if like, did something click in watching Wong Kar Wai or was it just sort of a crystallization of something you already knew? It, it, I think deep down I knew it. And I think it's something that I've personally been on a journey to um, accept and, and live through my, mm-hmm. throughout in my life. You know, it's hard when the parameters of your job and the industry you're in kind mm-hmm. of box you in, but I'm constantly trying to step out of that box or right. utilize that box. Uh, Dev Patel said something about that 
when he was in the newsroom that like, yes, his character started out one way very much in this box and he utilized that box to um, expand mm-hmm. this character. Oftentimes I try to keep that in mind. But um, for watching these films, what really mm-hmm. clicked for me, what when I first started watch, actually, you know what? It was the second one that I watched, which was mm. In the Mood for Love. <laughs> What what a moment, the first experience of just it hitting you and just being like, wow, th- these are, this is what we can, Andrew, this is what it, we're capable of as humans? Like, yeah. truly? It's, it's, <laughs> I <laughs> mean, I, I, can't, I can't it. even, but what really struck me is I've grown up watching movies, seeing white people fall in love. Um, I've seen, um, you know, one of my favorites is Blue Valentine, which is a very, um, you know, authentic, wow. raw, um, but difficult story to tell. You know, these characters are messy. It's not black and white. I've just, I've, I mean, I've seen a marriage story. You know, those are, those are stories that are telling the idea of love and marriage, um, not from like the, like um, a very, in not just yeah. not the standard way, you know, that it's, they're showing the messiness of it, which I love. And I've watched these films and movies, and I've seen many all through my childhood and growing up. And I was like, oh, okay, so these stories are set aside for for white people, you know? Um, right. Which is if, not true. Why would you have any reason to feel any other way if that's just what's constantly bombarding you? One hundred percent. So that was kind of the framework mm-hmm. for my thinking. And but then I had to kind of check myself because I was like, wait. Mm-hmm. I grew up with parents, and I've seen their marriage, the good and the bad. You know, I've seen how human they are. I, as a human being, am mm-hmm. very messy and dynamic. And and so then to watch In the Mood for Love, these two people, you know, navigate their relationships, their relationships with one another and stuff. I was like, wait, it is possible. <laughs> these two Asian people live mm-hmm. out this story or portray the story in such a beautiful, amazing artistic way. And, you know, that these narratives expand, like that's the thing, humanity, we, we all, the reason I think we even all love film and television is because it touches us and because mm-hmm. we can relate, you know, but there's another level of relatability that I felt watching In the Mood for Love mm-hmm. because I saw people that look like me, that look like my parents, that look like my grandparents. Um, and so it touched mm-hmm. me deeper than, you know, I think that any other film I've ever watched. And also it's just the most incredible work of art. I think Maggie Chung wears wears more than 20 different looks in that movie. Yeah. And not even all of them yeah. are in the film. There were other ones too. And they're all gorgeous. <laughs> I was I was watching uh I, I put on um uh Days of Be Days of Being Wild. Um yes. uh, uh, last night. She had obviously been in As Tears Go By, and but then like that first <laughs> shot you see of her in Days of Days of Being Wild, where she's like her, you know, she looks a bit older, she looks a bit more grown in into the part, and she's now a part of that repertoire of of Wong Kar Wai's. Yeah. And I was just like, I felt the air leave my body in this like green tinted, stark, almost kind of like hotel sort of setting with just her and loneliness and melancholy, and I was like. Bury me in this scene with Maggie Chung. Like, that's the only place I need to be. And the, the, look at the range that, because Wong Kar Wai has a tendency to to reuse actors that he's worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everything kind of, you look at these Easter eggs and they they can connect and it's really, really cool and interesting. Yeah, but, I think like um, Su Li Zhen is in, like, like that character is in like a half a dozen of his movies. Exactly. And so then these actors getting the chance to portray so many different characters in different times mm-hmm. uh, with different relationships. It was just like the range that he gave them and that they actually were able to take on mm-hmm. is, it's just, it gave, made me so hopeful for my career and for, you know, other Asian Americans mm-hmm. in, in that, you know, we, it reminded me that we have the capabilities. We just don't necessarily have the opportunities. Yeah. And that is something to, in mind because instead of me boxing myself in 
and being like, these are my limits based off of what I've known. Mm -hmm. I can try to expand and allow myself to have whether or not I get the opportunities, but I know that I'm capable. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that, I mean, it's just those films that really, they really, really do something for me. I was I was reading work about about essays about Wong Kar Wai while I was getting ready to talk to you. And I was reminded that like when like when As Tears Go By came out, it was crime and gangster pictures were huge in the Hong were huge in Hong Kong in the 90s. Like the <laughs> Hong Kong action renaissance pouring forth in the 1990s that is synonymous with names like Ringo Lam and Johnny Toe and John Woo and like incredible gunslinging Chow Yun Fat and Michelle Yeoh rising through the ranks as a martial <laughs> artist. Exactly. Like yeah. as a as a martial artist and and a, and a comic actress. And Maggie Chung mm. started her career as a comic actress as well. And so you have Wong Kar Wai showing up making his like sort of like studio satisfying picture debut with As Tears Go By. People love it. It's a smash. And then he makes Days of Being Wild. And it's this it is what we would come to know Wong Kar Wai as for sort of mm. the extension of his career. And people fucking hated it. They were like, screw yeah. this guy. We want, we came for her for a gangster movie. Like we came here yeah. for a crime picture. And it, in that way, it felt not dissimilar to this moment, even where the, you know, Hollywood studio system, there's so much to say about it. Oh, yeah. But like in a terrain, in, a, in an environment that feels like it is unwelcoming of bold artistic decisions in favor of what is left of sort of like the monolithic attempt to bring people to a common uniting theater experience in the form of things like Marvel films and DC films. They're like, it was a bit of that in Hong Kong in the 90s where Wong Kar Wai mm. took his second shot and was like, I got in the door, guys, but that is absolutely not what I'm going to spend the rest of my career doing. Yeah. And I felt really heartened thinking of that arc for him, that he became Wong Kar Wai after he made like, the studio pick and then was like, yeah. great, now I'm going to produce on a little budget with handshakes and a repertoire of actors who love me and an incredible cinematographer and Christopher Doyle. And I'm going to make beauty yeah. for the rest of my life. Yeah, the authenticity and the ability to say, you know, screw it, I don't need just the money or the approval of the, the broader population, I'm going to do things that I find to be interesting and titillating and that are true to my artistic vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's inspiring in and of itself. Mm -hmm. uh, being able to see these parallels of what goes on in the American film industry and the Asian film industry, and this, I will say, I'm sure that people know far more than I do, and especially people living in Asia, like that they're like, wait, this is normal for us. Sure, sure, sure. But to see the parallels of what I know and what else is out there mm -hmm. um, in, in in two different parts of the world, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's just kind of um, heartwarming and reassuring mm -hmm. that no matter where you are in the world, the human experience can be um, attributed to everyone, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. no matter what you look like, no matter what your background is, no matter what your uh what language you speak you know the food you eat whatever we all have this human experience and it's just like because we see it with people who look so vastly different from what people think americans look like uh, that it's not relatable and it absolutely is and so i would recommend anyone to watch a wong kar wai movie because i can tell you that the feelings you're going to feel <laughs> you're going it's just like it's comparable if not exceeding to any of like the most touching American films you've ever seen. And it's going to show you that around the world as human beings, we're all feeling and going through this journey together and similarly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, and, and I think I was wondering with, um, you know, you talking about like the idea of being able to sort of expand your own capacity for your imagination of what is possible for yourself. Yeah. And yeah. and I, I, you know, and, and comparing that, adding that to the fact of like asking like, well, where have you seen yourself, you know, where have you felt yourself seen on, on film? And, you know, entering this Wong Kar Wai odyssey at this kind of basically present moment in your life, meaning that leading up through all of those years, all those 20 some odd years, you weren't finding an easy avatar to pluck forward and be like, oh, well, I can say yeah. this one. And I, yeah. that is one of the most essential parts of the conversation here, which is that not everybody has an answer. And we need to interrogate yeah. why that is. And, and a thing that I wanted to ask you about based on all of that sort of together is, do you feel like in what you have been allowed to do on screen and the, the roles that you have either tried to step outside the box or make the box work to your favor, do you feel mm -hmm. like you have been able to create 
work for yourself that satisfies the thing you haven't seen? Or are you still sort of like waiting for the chance to do that? Like, how do you feel about your own sort of work in that context? Yeah, I've been really um, trying to look inwards lately. Mm. And, you know, I've been so lucky to be, like you said, like we talked about earlier, working nonstop for like the past two, three years, you know, and I've been a little bit, I guess you could say pickier or more intentional Mm -hmm. about the things that I choose to do Mm -hmm. because I want to feel fulfilled. I want to feel challenged. And in the past, I've not always felt that way. I've always felt like, oh, who am I to say no to even an audition Mm -hmm. or an offer or whatever? Because I, as an Asian woman, am just lucky to be in the room. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, just lucky to be here. Yeah. So, you know, not giving myself the credit of, hey, I worked hard to be here. In fact, I think I, people of color and people in marginalized groups have to work harder than those that are just broadly accepted. And so, and I'm not, I don't always give myself the credit for that. And so um, I think that like we were talking about before, I know what you did last summer was a big thing for me because as an actor personally, because Sarah Goodman gave me the opportunity to play a character that I don't really think I've seen an Asian person play. Mm -hmm. And it was challenging and it was dynamic. Mm -hmm. And also, by the way, and this is a little fun fact, she never told me how it was going to end. Really? Oh my, wait, you didn't know? Oh my God, that- She didn't tell me how it was going to end until we got the last two episodes, which was, you know, um, halfway, a little more than halfway through shooting in Hawaii. That means I have to go back and rewatch so I can watch every single choice you make in absence of knowing that information. (laughs) Right? And it's really interesting because I was actually the first person cast in the show, which I thought was um, interesting. Yeah. I was like, mm, shouldn't you cast the twins first? You know, <laughs> the lead character. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, and then that's usually how it goes. You cast, you know, the lead and then you get the surrounding characters. And so it felt very interesting to me that I was the first person cast huh. and she was very, she was very sure of me. I, I read one time in not even with her. I didn't even meet her when I accepted the job. Oh, oh wow. And, yeah, you guys were just and, like, yes, yes, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. It was a very intuitive thing. And um, I'm, I'm, I just feel very lucky that she had so much faith in me mm-hmm. in that way. But um, yeah, so we were shooting and when, or actually before shooting, we were talking about this character. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I like to do a lot of prep, honestly, to soothe my anxiety. <laughs> and, and just, I find it to be very interesting. It's like, you know, doing a puzzle mm-hmm. of, of, of who this human being is and putting the pieces together and getting a script and how do I justify this? Uh-huh. Or um, what? why does this make sense? And why doesn't it make sense? Mm-hmm. And what can we change? And um, it was funny to see Sarah and our other directors kind of give me a note for a scene and lead me in a direction that I'm like, I would want, you know, because of all the work I'd done and I felt so close to Margo and I yeah. knew her inside and out, I would fight them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'd be like, she wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. And they were like, but she would. And I was like, well, tell me why. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we're under an NDA. Is that enough information for you, Brianne? <laughs> and Sarah would have to pull me aside and be like, you have to trust me on this. And I'm like, Sarah, I trust you with my life, but you're wrong. Yeah, you're like, I do trust you, but you're not Margo. I'm Margo. So here's the thing. And she would just be like, and, and Logan Kibbins, one of my favorite people on the planet, or one of the directors, she um, would be like, try it like this. And I'd be like, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I love you standing up for Margo, Brienne. You know, Margo would do it for me. So, I would um, die for Margo, so I appreciate you seriously. writing for her. <laughs> and she would say, well, just like, just do it. Try it. It's just for fun. <laughs> Give me the option. And then you find out later that that was the one they're going to use because it makes sense. And you go back and track everything. And I'm, I'm crazy about tracking. I have a graph what? that I keep. A you have your graph. own Margo yarn chart where you yeah, are. Yeah, I do basically, <laughs> which is so Margo. It's so Margo. <laughs> Maybe I'm more like her than I'm willing to admit. Um, but the character goes through this journey and I've never over that long period of time and the complexities of that had the opportunity to do that. Uh-huh. And then to be trusted with that, um, regardless of what I looked like and yeah. you know the life I've led, that was a huge thing for me because Sarah Goodman saw me as a person mm-hmm. be- before anything else, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and she saw me th- that I had 
dimensions, many of them, and that I was able to play this character. So just to have that faith and trust in, in someone else, mm -hmm. It, it, that was huge, you know, and, and I've been lucky enough to kind of keep going in a way where I've, I've been doing projects that challenge me, even this film, Unhuman. Um, to, I've, I've never played this, the leading role. Uh -huh. And so to be trusted in that and to be seen, because, you know, I, I think it would have been very easy and safe to cast um, a, a white girl mm -hmm. to play um, ever in this movie who's my character to have you to have you be the best friend again I've exactly and you know I've done that my whole life mm -hmm. and um so to then be given the opportunity to take on the lead role which comes with a lot of responsibility uh -huh. and 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 difficulty you know and and not even just like in terms of like the character work but like in I worked every single day there was not a day that I did not worry I had to show up I believe that the environment starts with the person at the top. I'm a number one on the call sheet. Mm -hmm. So there was a responsibility to create an environment where people felt safe, collaborative, and supported. Mm -hmm. And so I just never had that opportunity before. And so that was really special for me to be able to take on this role that I have seen so many um, white people yeah. do. Yeah. It, that actually made... In, in a way that maybe would have made more sense. But it, <laughs> just based off of the his, historically what we've seen on film and television. Mm -hmm. So to be able to have um, the opportunity to do this lead role in, in a film with Blumhouse, who I love, I mean, that was very, very special for me. And so I, I hope that um, I can, I hope that my career keeps moving in that direction, in that whether it be a lead role or not, that I get to play characters that, um, are just like so, so interesting and human and, you know, don't just fall into a category that people feel comfortable with, that executives feel comfortable with. I think we can start challenging those boundaries a little bit more because, I mean, if you need the proof, the proof is in the pudding in that like, um, we're human beings living in this world. <laughs> I'm going through something yeah. that you're going through or, you know, and so, and, and also with the nuance of that, I have a, a background um, growing up as an, in an Asian family mm -hmm. with parents that came from Indonesia. Mm -hmm. And so I actually can add um, nuances to my character and performance that you've never seen before. Yeah. And that can actually make it more dynamic and interesting. And I, that I can be a pillar for the Asian community where they can watch an, um, a, an actor or a character in a movie and relate to it. Uh, way more mm -hmm. than they could to um, a white person because yeah. they've lived that experience. And I think we should start catering to other um, communities and their nuances and celebrating that. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Brianne Chu. Then stick around because I'll have one quick thing before I go about drum roll, please. Top Gun Maverick, Tom Cruise and the place of women in the Tom Cruise action ecosystem. So stick around for that. It's, it's slightly one of my favorite topics. Hey, it's John Moe. Join me on Depression Mode for conversations on how mental health shapes our life. This week, David Sedaris with stories of his late father that he's finally willing to tell. I think there's a difference between, you know, a good person and a good character. Like, he was a good character, my boyfriend here. You know, my father was another one of those people. He was a really good character, but he, he, he wasn't a good person. Depression Mode with John Moe, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine. And they hardly ever say Bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, 
why not join the McElroy brothers every week for my brother, my brother and me. Welcome back to Feeling Seen. I'm talking with actor Brianne Chu. She is only 24, but her filmography is already stacked with TV and film roles, many of them genre films. Huge bonus for, for me and the genre heads out there, including her latest from director Marcus Dunstan, Unhuman. Let's get back to that conversation. Rachel True in the, the horror noir documentary on Shudder, like she has that great sequence where she talks about the amount of time she has had, the, the number of ways she has had to train herself to say in, in, a, in a script, hey, are you okay? To a white person. Are you okay? Oh are you okay? And she does like five different takes in that moment on, are you okay? Because that yes. has been so many times in her career. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> As in the, the re- yeah, I mean, I know exactly how she's feeling. <laughs> Are you sure this is a good idea? You know, like how you need someone to be the um, the voice of reason, yeah. you know? Are you sure this is a good idea? Are you sure about this? You know, like I've done that many times. Or even like one of my, the tropes that I really dislike, um, or I think is way overused, right. is like the sassy, funny best friend. Yes, of course. Which, um, often is you know um i think forced upon people in the black community yes, and i think that, that i think they're far more dynamic and interesting than just that you know but the sassy quips here and there and i've been in that position before too mm-hmm. it's like it's it, it can be tiring yeah and well, that's really um, fucking monotonous to have to do all the time yeah, yeah when when you know that me and these other actors these people of color have the ability to do more, but they're only given the chance to say, are you sure about that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, how are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Whatever, you know? And so, yeah. <laughs> no, of course. And I, I think what it's the cool thing of, and also the really unfair thing of, uh, particularly working so much in, in genre as you do, it puts you in the position of making history over and over again, which again, cool but also a responsibility and responsibilities Mm. are cool but are also things that need to be shouldered and aren't necessarily things that white counterparts around you are having to shoulder at the same time and therefore going through the same experience as you like yeah the burden is not shared equally for sure yeah like you you have you have absolutely uh been responsible for the canonically queering of classic horror texts like I know what you did last summer, like Scream, the TV series. Like, it. so, okay, great. We have these firsts. We have these, like, ma- making explicit of queerness that was always explicit from the the roots of these things that came about, particularly in the 90s, of this, like, queer coterie of, of filmmakers that we had coming up at that time. Don Mancini, Silvio Horta writing Urban Legend, uh, Darren Stein writing Jawbreaker, obviously the Scream franchise. Like, there's there's so much of that. And it's like, all right, and now Brianne Chu is going to come forth and she's going to play these queer characters. And that's a beautiful beautiful thing and then in this and then in unhuman you are a final girl you are an indonesian final girl i honestly can't point to a time when i've ever been able to say that before which again cool but also another thing that becomes something you are responsible for carrying with you and responsibilities are fucking tiring sometimes it can 100 and also the um the height of which you fall if you fail is um I think worse than, you know, like, I think we've we've seen it and, and there's a disparity between even just men and women directors, right? Oh. Men can fail over and over again and still get another shot. A woman fails. Um, okay, cool. You're done. Mm-hmm. You know, you, thank you for proving to us that women can't direct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We were waiting for it and we just knew. Thanks. We just knew. Thank you for proving our point. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, and, and it's like that with people of color versus pe- um, people not of color mm-hmm. and um it's it's like okay so it was very nerve-wracking to step into this role because in in my eyes if you if whoever Mm -hmm. the powers that may be decide that like oh you're not doing a great job or 
you know, the movie doesn't do well or whatever, which I think this is a great movie and I hope it does do It's really well. fun. And you guys, if you if you're Marcus Dunstan fans, um, if you watch the collection and the collector back in the day, yeah. if you like uh, his collaborations with uh, Emma Fitzpatrick, uh, it's a really it's a fun Marcus Dunstan pick. You should know that you're getting into that. This is a man who knows how to handle a film that way. And it's a it's a it's a good wild ride when it picks up. It it hits the gas. It really, really does. And he's, <laughs> he's such an artist when it comes to that. You know, he's very good at curating these moments, creating suspense. Mm. And then, like, when it's going to hit, it's going to hit hard. <laughs> yeah. and, um, but, you know, I was nervous about it. And I was like, it's funny because when I got the call to meet with the director, I thought he was going to say, so I auditioned forever, the lead role. And I thought they were going to say, do you want to play Tamara? Right, Yeah. <laughs> And they didn't, and, and that never came out of Marcus's mouth. Marcus never treated me um, like I was incapable or any different. Mm-hmm. And he just—he's such a lovely, incredible human being and director. And it's funny because um, for the t- type of work that he produces yeah. and creates, you'd think that maybe he'd be like this really dark, like. <laughs> I mean, he is quirky. Don't get me wrong, but he's also the sweetest human being. <laughs> <laughs> like great petty bear and so i feel very fortunate but um but yeah it's like the fear of failing i think is just far more exponential mm-hmm. for people who um haven't historically gotten a chance to fail and try again mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A-, a thing that is so beautiful to watch about about Wong Kar Wai films is is when i i love seeing when an ensemble returns for a filmmaker I love yeah. it when you see that people want to keep working with each other over and over something. again. Yeah. And, and I was reading some interviews with you getting ready for this, obviously. And another uh, filmmaker that you cited enjoying was like Haunting of Hill House and Mike Flanagan. Mm. And well, with Oh, you're right. There's a pattern with me. I was like, honestly, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not like the number 23-ing this. Like there, there really are some good like connective yeah. tissues between like. They, they have that returning ensemble cast. There is an emphasis on, like, sense of place as character in the in the, mm. the works that Mike Flanagan makes and, and his collaborations with his cinematographer, Mike Fimignari. Like, Mike Flanagan is one of my favorite filmmakers because all of his films look like storybooks, no matter how horrible and horrifying they are. Like, the, the worst thing you could imagine seeing in Doctor Strange he basically gives you and it looks yeah. like a dream and 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 everything Wonkar Y makes with with Christopher Doyle looks like a dream and so I was I was enjoying the tissue between those two filmmakers as people that you are drawn to and and like the lusciousness and the ensemble cast and sort of that like visual language forward but like a heavy heavy emphasis on like intimacy and vulnerability regardless of the narrative points of the story that being like heavily part of anything that both of them make yeah i mean anything that's character driven relationship driven and really focus on that you can tell that that is the priority you know (laughs) that is always something i'm drawn to as an actor and as an audience member Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, this is as well, this is an ensemble cast and it's just, it's it's really lovely to be, I like an ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. I like, I don't know, there's just so many different possibilities in terms of the relationships you can have with each person, whether they be significant or not. Mm-hmm. And then the idea of like a Wong Kar Wai movie or a Mike Flanagan film or TV show is like, yes, these actors, I think that you're just um, strengthening the relationship that these actors have with one another and then you put them in different situations and there's a level of trust that's already there mm-hmm. and i think the more trust that you can have in your in your acting partners and your director um whoever it, it just is going to open the possibilities of what you're willing to try because you feel safe you know mm-hmm. and i think you have so many different voices and opinions that you can collaborate with and pick and choose from and try and you know, and I think the more perspectives, the better, mm-hmm. um, because you're essentially making something that a broad audience is going to watch, and you hope that there's something that everyone can, you know, identify with. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I do love a good ensemble. <laughs> well, okay, so then I we're we're working we're working toward the end of the time, and so like I guess a a kind of culminating question would be, um, you know, you're you're in your Wong Kar Wai era, Sinit. Sinista Brianchu in her Wong Kar Wai era. Um, you have been working 
seemingly nonstop for, I don't know, probably around two years. We're talking about these experiences, these recent ones, like with Unhuman with Marcus Dunstan and then Sarah Goodman and company working with, I know what you did last summer, where it, it feels like you were really invited into the process and also given more of a like featured forward front and center top of call sheet role. With all of those things, it feels like, you know, sort of the cumulative effect of feeling a sense of empowerment is you develop a greater sense of what you are not willing to take anymore. Like the what shit you're not willing to take, the things you're not willing to tolerate. And like you said, sort of looking inward with yourself and being like, what do I really want to say yes to? Like, where am I really like intentionally wanting to place myself? And I wanted to know about like where in that sort of intention setting is Brianne Chu of now versus that pre-breakneck pace of working two years ago and sort of mm-hmm. like you're continuing on you're in Calgary again you're working still but like how are you feeling about you know again with Wong Kar Wai under your belt and seeing a brighter horizon with with work like his how do you yeah. feel about like those intentions now for yourself with with that starring role with that fucking final girl with that like erotic thriller heroine and in Marco like how are you doing with that Yeah, I think it's funny that you say that because it really is something that I've had a breakthrough with recently. Mm. And it's that, um, you know, like I've been working a lot on my self-care and um, my self-acceptance, my self-love. And I realized that in saying no, that is one of the the greatest things I can do for myself. That's power. Saying no is power. it, It really, really is. And in the past, I didn't think I had the, I, I was allowed to, Yeah, you know, that's really what, what, where it came from. I didn't think I was allowed to, because I thought that if I said no, that um, no opportunities would ever come my way. Yeah. Ever then, you know, I was, I was operating on fear. Mm-hmm. And now, like you said, that I feel more empowered and um, capable. And I just, I just trust and love myself so much more than I did in the past mm-hmm. that like, now it's like, if a project doesn't, and I have been in the position very recently to say no to a project, not because like it was bad or anything, but because I, I had done that mm-hmm. already. Yeah, I had done that actually maybe multiple times, <laughs> and then I, I I guess that is why they you know wanted to hire me because they could trust that I could do that part, sure. which is flattering, you know. Um, but it's just not what I wanted to do. I wasn't excited about it, and. I, I don't want to be someone that just says yes to things out of fear, mm-hmm. out of want for a paycheck mm-hmm. or whatever. I want to do it, you know, because it's going to serve me. It's going to hopefully serve my community. And I think that the the more um, interesting and, and dynamic roles that you can play, the more that you're just going to be able to portray something that more people are going to understand and relate to and feel seen. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I want to do that because people like Sandra Oh and Michelle Yeoh, especially yeah. like all these one car Y movies, they do that for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm so my gratitude is through the roof. And like, I want to do that for other people. I don't want to just serve myself selfishly out of my fear. And, and, you know, like, like I said, a paycheck yeah. and not everyone has that um goal or intention and that's totally fine mm-hmm. to each their own but i've gotten to a place that that's what i want to do yeah that's where i'm at right now and you know i think i'm actually as of right now gonna have a little bit of a break <laughs> i am ecstatic that way before i would be scared shitless normally going home and not having something lined up because like i said you know that fear can like run your life and now i just I'm going to enjoy everything that I have accomplished and done. And I'm going to just look forward to, for the right opportunity to come for me next. And yeah. You know what? The year of the, the ethos behind the year of yes is great, but I am looking forward to a year of no for Brienne. I selfishly don't, don't want that to happen, but I, I understand that that is, that is, that is power and you holding on to it. And I so appreciate you saying yes for the moment for to this interview with me, Brianne. Thank you. so. It has been wonderful to talk to you. This has been so lovely. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Uh, unhuman. And God, listen back to the beginning of this podcast, guys, because I cannot possibly remember all of the things that Brianne told you she's coming up in and filming. But there is a lot. So in, in Brianne's year of no, leave her alone. 
um, you can catch up on the back catalog of things that she's made over the past two years and that she's currently making now. Uh, again, Brianne, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you again to Brianne Chu. Destiny really worked out in our favor on this one, guys. I know what you did last summer, Nation. This one's for us. We did it, Joe. We did it. We did it, Sam Weinman. I know you're out there. You can rent Unhuman right now on Amazon, Apple TV, and a bunch of other places. You you know the 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 standard the standard issue platforms by now. And if you still haven't caught with I Know What You Did Last Summer Fever, stream that right now on Amazon Prime. You will see what all of that specific fuss for Brienne Chu is about. And hey, guess what? You don't have to worry about binging a big catalog because it did not get picked up for season two, which means you have one perfect season of television that you can just mainline, check in, check out, be done. Enjoy that. Um, and now I've got one quick thing before I go. And how could one be quick about something so epic as Top Gun Maverick? I remember when the reviews for this started coming out early, early screenings, and people were, there was like, wow, like, they fucking pulled it off. Like, this was better than First Top Gun. And there was this, like, raft of tweets. It was like, yeah, but First Top Gun's piece of shit, man. It's like, come shove it up your ass. You know, like, Top Gun is iconography top gun is a part of the cultural canon fucking Iceman, maverick val kilmer tom cruise great balls of fire little meg ryan kelly mcgillis like we we know this is part of lore so i don't want to hear your garbage about like yeah well first top gun was bad you know what have you done i mean you have made top gun so screw you anthony edwards you did great work there um and now we're back. We're back in the Top Gun universe. Uh, Maverick has to train a squadron of young, new, fiery, sure of their own abilities, Top Guns, to uh, with a select group to fly an impossible mission, uh, taking out a er- nuclear enrichment facility. Sure, that's, that's the story. That's why we're here. But the point is the almost feels like in its way a kind of culmination of the lifetime of star power of tom cruise which is it's 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 without equal at this point it's without peer there there isn't at this stage a movie star uh like tom cruise we don't make them like that anymore and it's because it's, the industry is not the same it, the, the landscape is so fractured um the multiplex is not the place where we all go to watch the same movies uh, obviously the dominance of like the Disney machine and Marvel people had a lot of feelings about that, but just there are not monoculture dominating stars like Tom Cruise created anew anymore because there is not a monoculture anymore that, that we are all living in and sharing together. But a thing that, that endures about Tom Cruise that I love so much about him back, uh, in my first year working at Vulture, it was 2016, I wrote a piece about how at the time it was not sort of an automatic assumption that studios were going to go for like that. And now the like female spinoff, like that kind of de rigueur, let's give the woman her own movie, even if we don't give her the resources to make it good kind of thing before the like rise of the Charlize Theron action movie industrial complex. Obviously there had been many women, many women making action movies and starring in them for a very long time up to that point. But that I think what we can peg to Charlize and like the pivot to, you know, solo superhero movie outings ushered in a new era of the size of the platform that female action stars were afforded and the the resources that they got uh, to star in these movies. But my point of view uh, at the time was that if a woman couldn't have her own action movie, which which would have still been a, a bit of a treat then, if a w- woman couldn't be in her own action movie as the star, the best place for her to be in action cinema was co-starring alongside Tom Cruise because he gives a better forum for better realized female co-stars in the sort of action big spectacle genre space than damn near anybody else doing it today. Like what Tom Cruise is going to do in a movie is he is going to ensure that the stars around him shine so brightly because Tom Cruise fucking loves the movies and Tom Cruise wants his movies to be great. And he is a very, for especially for someone of his magnitude, is an incredibly generous 
star as a screen presence in that way. I feel like that's a really notable thing about him. And it really struck me watching Top Gun. There's a scene where this doesn't give anything away. She's a cute scene. Uh, He's out sailing with Jennifer Connelly. Oh, God. Jennifer Connelly, everybody. He's out sailing with Jennifer Connelly. And and this man does not have sea legs. He is a man of the skies. Maverick does not know what the hell to do on a sailboat. And you have Jennifer Connelly at the helm, just confident, cool, gorgeous, Um, you know, ordering him about, telling him what to do. He doesn't understand what she's telling him to do. She has to explain her little orders. And it's very loving. It's very playful. She is not making emasculating jokes at him. And he is not making hyper-masculine rejoinders back at her in order to increase his sense of masculinity in this subservient position that he's been put into. There's no threat between the two of them of what her superiority in that moment means in terms of their romantic dynamic. Because it's just comfortable. And that's a thing that I've always really admired about Cruz as a screen presence is that he seems entirely comfortable with his co-stars getting boosted And he seems entirely comfortable with women starring opposite him without having to objectify, sexualize, minimize, turn them into trophies. Even as women have made advances in action cinema, having so many more of their own vehicles in which to star, um, still, if they're not going to be in their own film, I do stand by the assertion that if, if they cannot have their own venture, the best place for a woman to be in an action movie is alongside Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise opts into, like, a fucking little spoon position when he is on this sailboat. Like, at one point, Jennifer Connelly turns over the helm to him, and he's standing at the big wheel, like, steering the boat, and she stands behind him and takes, takes, the, takes the wheel behind his arms and is guiding him. And there's nothing about it that feels like a competition between the two. It feels like equals in a romantic exchange. And it, there's something I, I cannot I cannot quantify why it is that that felt so satisfying to see or why it is that it felt so rare. But when it happened, I was like, this is fairly extraordinary for a male star of this profile to seed the moment to the woman literally behind him in the dominant position. That's Tom Cruise, a challenging public figure, demands scrutiny questioning interrogation uh as a screen presence still nobody doing it like him so if you get the chance to go see uh top gun maverick in a theater and you feel comfortable going to theaters it's really good to see on a big screen so that is my one not so quick thing before i go today and that is our show you can follow us on twitter at feeling scene pod or send us an email at feeling scene at maximumfun.org if you want to follow me, I'm Crew on Twitter. Our theme music is by Andrew Epen. The show is produced by Marissa Flaxbart. Our senior producers are Kevin Ferguson and Laura Swisher. And this is a production of Maximum Fun. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.